This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's recent published report, Global Warming of 1.5 Degrees Centigrade. We've been discussing the report, and more specifically, Chapter 3, Impacts of 1.5 Degrees Global Warming on Natural and Human Systems, is the chapter's co-author, Professor Chris Ebay, Director of the Center for Health and Global Environment in Rome, and Haas Endowed Professor in Public Health Sciences at the University of Washington. Professor Ebay, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Professor Ebay's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, podcast listeners are aware last Wednesday or November 7th, I posted a link to an essay by me that provided an overview of the IPCC's October report, again titled Global Warming of 1.5 Degrees Centigrade. The essay also discussed the healthcare industry's in aggregate indifference to climate change. This is remarkable for at least three reasons. Global warming poses an enormous threat to both human health and survival. After the food industry, the healthcare industry is the second largest greenhouse gas polluter. And as a result, the healthcare industry is ironically contributing significantly to the onset of disease conditions it is supposedly dedicated to preventing and treating. Beyond the IPCC's work, listeners may also want to read the related 2016 report published by numerous federal agencies, including EPA, DOD, NASA, NOAA, USDA, and others, titled The Impacts of Climate Change on Human Health in the U.S., a Scientific Assessment. Again, with me to discuss the IPCC's findings and specifically global warming's effects on human health is University of Washington professor Christy Ibey. So with that as introduction and background, Professor, let me start by asking, can you briefly explain the IPCC's work and what prompted this report? The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is, as the name implies, an intergovernmental group. And it was formed about 30 years ago to conduct assessments of what is known about the state of science to inform policymaking. There's been five completed rounds of assessment products. We're in the sixth round of assessment. And in this round, based on the Paris Agreement, the IPCC was specifically requested to assess what is known about the impacts of warming of 1.5 and 2 degrees above pre-industrial. So this is the first report that was requested by the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change from the IPCC, and as I said, the topic is based on the Paris Agreement. Okay, thank you. And uh, just to note, the overall goal of the Paris Climate Accord is to keep uh, temperatures uh, below uh, 2 degrees uh, centigrade. Is that correct? Above pre-industrial, that's correct. Yes, correct, yes. Correct. Okay. Let's go um, next to, can you just provide the report's general conclusions? The report reached a number of key conclusions. 
number one, the Earth has already warmed about one degree centigrade above pre-industrial. That warming is associated with observed impacts on human and natural systems. In other words, people today are suffering and dying because of climate change. Mm -hmm. The second is any additional unit of warming, by and large, not in every instance, but by and large, will increase the risks. So the risks that we're seeing today will increase as the temperatures continue to rise. Another key conclusion is that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of options to increase our preparedness for managing these risks and for reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. The risks as we look into the future will affect those who are most vulnerable. That is, they will affect people who contributed the least to greenhouse gas emissions. And another key conclusion is there's nothing in the climate system that would keep us, human societies, from reducing our emissions so that we would stay below 2 degrees C above pre-industrial. So there's no constraints in the climate system that means we have to go above 2 degrees. It's entirely up to all of us mm-hmm. individually and collectively about our actions with respect to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And as I said, there's hundreds and hundreds of options for doing so. Okay, thank you. And the conclusion that garnered most of the publicity and media attention from the report was what percents by, there's an estimate made, percents reductions by 2030 and 2050, correct? That's because the climate modeling projections tell us that at the rate of warming that's going on right now, that the Earth will hit 1.5 degrees somewhere before about 2050. Mm -hmm. We could hit it as soon as two decades from now. So with a very short period of time, a very rapid amount of warming will have significant consequences for the frequency and intensity of extreme events, for example, and consequences for human health, for ecosystems, for agriculture, for water resources. Mm -hmm. Just to note as a related aside, the U.S. historically is the largest emitter of greenhouse gases, and my understanding is currently it ranks second behind China. Let's go to your expertise or more of your expertise. And again, you are co-author of of Chapter 3. This is the 243-page contribution chapter, again titled Impacts of 1.5C Global Warming on Natural and human systems. There's a lot there in the chapter. Uh, I, I drafted at least 15 bullets here. Um, let's just start on point with uh, the various aspects of how global warming or increased uh, extreme weather, the effects it has on human health. So can you just, let's just start with a general overview of the various ways in which increased uh, temperatures affect adversely human health. Higher temperatures lead to higher heat-related morbidity and mortality. Mm -hmm. They don't have to, but right now with our current level of preparedness, we are seeing increases in heat-related morbidity and mortality. There's very high confidence in those conclusions. Warmer air, if you don't 
change anything. You just look at warmer temperatures. On clear, cloudless days, there's an increase in ozone formation. And ozone is a lung irritant, mm-hmm. leads to adverse consequences for, for anyone who has any kinds of issues with their lungs, asthma, COPD, and others. Vector-borne diseases, in some instances, are already starting to change their range and their seasonality and their intensity of transmission. So for some vector-borne diseases, the studies project that we will see greater numbers of diseases than we see today in some instances because the world is becoming hotter and drier in many locations there could be a reduction in the geographic range of some vector-borne diseases, but on balance, the projections are for a uh, significant increase. With warmer temperatures, we know that as temperatures become too high, worker productivity tends to fall, so there could be reductions in worker productivity. As temperatures continue to rise, that has consequences, of course, for economies and how um, economies can do things like outdoor work and make sure that that work is as productive as possible. Another key conclusion that arises out of looking at the health literature is most of the mitigation policies and technologies have co-benefits for health. This means that getting more people walking and cycling, getting people to be more active in a variety of domains, having people considering changing their diet so they're not quite so heavy in meat, both improves our health and reduces our greenhouse gas emissions. So when one thinks about the cost of mitigation, very rarely do those costs reflect these health co-benefits. And the studies suggest the size of those health co-benefits are of about the same order of magnitude as the cost of mitigation. And, of course, those benefits accrue much sooner. So mitigating is good for our health. Okay, thank you. Just to be clear on vector-borne diseases, these are, um, they're, they're very, several vectors, but least of which, of course, are insects. So uh, much discussion about global warming as it relates to increased uh, instances of malaria. Correct. Correct. And some places, as I said, may become too hot and too dry for the mosquito that carries malaria, the Anopheles mosquito. Right. But by and large, the projections suggest an increase in the geographic range along the current edges of the distribution of the Anopheles mosquito. Okay. The other, amongst many others, I'm sure you're well aware, is, of course, there are mental health consequences. There definitely are mental health consequences. However, there is not literature projecting mental health consequences at warming above pre-industrial of 1.5 and 2 degrees C. So that's not included in the report because the literature is not there. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. Um, Well, there are many ways to go here, but uh, just to note this, of course, this has a a profound effect on health care disparities, correct? Yes, it does. As I mentioned, those who are disenfranchised in many different ways, people who live in vulnerable regions, 
people with lower incomes, people who have a variety of chronic diseases, are all at increased risk. And so, yes, the projections strongly support the conclusion that as the climate continues to change, it will further widen these health disparities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Let, let's, let's spend a moment or two on uh, the issue of food security or nutrition or undernutrition. I did see the report noted in 2016 worldwide there were 815 million who are identified as undernourished worldwide. Um, so there are significant effects uh, in this literature, in your review, as it relates to um, food security. Can you explain uh, the effect warming has on uh, agricultural productivity? And particularly interesting, of course, is uh, deterioration in crop nutrients, I found. There's two mechanisms here. One is as temperature and precipitation patterns change, mm -hmm. that in many parts of the world, particularly the vulnerable parts of the world, parts of Africa and Asia in particular, there is a reduction in crop yields. And that is because in some of these countries, these crops that people rely on for the bulk of their calories are growing at the thermal edge of their tolerance. So increases in local temperature means that crop yields will fall. There's also consequences from extreme events. There's been an increase in the frequency, intensity, and duration of heat waves, for example. And heat waves at the wrong time of the year significantly reduce crop yields. Some of the big heat waves that occurred over the last few years were associated with very large declines in crop yields. Mm -hmm. In 2010, there was a heat wave significant heat wave in Russia, followed by fires. But the heat wave really reduced the yields of wheat in Russia. Wheat is a major export from Russia to Egypt, and one of the consequences were food riots in Egypt because of a heat wave in Russia. So we need to think about how temperature changes affects crop yields. In addition, there is concern about water and water resources, and so parts of the world are drying with warmer air. The atmosphere pulls moisture out of the soil, making the soil drier, so when it doesn't rain, you have more drought. That also affects crop yields quite strongly. So you've got a number of mechanisms by which a changing climate could, in vulnerable places, reduce crop yields. A separate mechanism from that is the emission of greenhouse gases, particularly carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And higher concentrations of carbon dioxide affect a group of crops called C3 crops. These are rice, wheat, potatoes, and some other crops that are the source of nutrition for many people around the world. With higher CO2, the plant physiology is affected in a way that the plants have less protein, less micronutrients, particularly iron and zinc, and less B vitamins. So the crops become much less nutritious with higher CO2 concentrations. Mm -hmm. We published something on this a few months back and estimated this is affecting about 600 million people in Asia because of rice mm -hmm. alone. Okay, thank you. Um, 
Much of this discussion, uh, I, I find it interesting that, and, and your report does discuss this, but I, I do find it interesting generally, there's less discussion, it seems, relative to the effect on oceans. This report does note uh, ocean acidification. Uh, oceans have absorbed 30% of anthropogenic CO2. Uh, the report states this is unprecedented in the last 65 million years at least. But there is, relative to uh, nutrition, there is obviously an impact on fisheries and aquaculture uh, that the report uh, knows. Can you discuss that? Well, yes. There's been a very strong impact on ocean and ocean ecosystems. That was covered extensively in the last Working Group 2 contribution to the fifth assessment report. And Chapter 3 has significant sections mm-hmm. on how oceans and ocean ecosystems are being affected by these higher temperatures. So, yes, there is a lot going on. There's Corals are under significant threat. Fisheries in parts of the world are under significant threat. So there is quite a bit in the assessment about how climate change will affect food security for, for example, small island developing states or for people who rely on fish in coastal areas. Right, and there was particular mention in the Mekong Delta in this report I noticed. Uh, relative to coral reefs, the report said that at 1.5, we could see 70 to 90% loss, and at 2 uh, C, remarkably, the report noted, I believe, north of, what well, was it, 99% uh, loss, uh, so ext- uh, very pronounced. Let, let, me, let me go to this related issue, and it's, it gets mentioned in discussion in your chapter, and, and relative to agricultural-dependent communities, uh, this is the out-migration. So we'll see, obviously, significant effects of what are called, I guess now, climate refugees. That literature is quite interesting in trying to think about what are the drivers for migration. Mm-hmm. And making a series of assumptions about what it takes for people to move. There's other literature that was cited in earlier reports showing that people have to have a particular, they have to be above a particular income before they can consider migrating. Mm -hmm. That when you're too poor, migrating is not actually an option. And there's lots of people, reasons that people migrate, people migrate for economic reasons, for other reasons, and trying to sort this out is really quite complicated. There does appear to be a temperature signal in there, and so there is growing literature saying that certainly out-migration could occur depending on choices that are made. If there's choices made to help increase the food security, for example, in agricultural dependent communities, then in fact that out-migration would be of a significantly reduced magnitude. Mm-hmm. So the report is quite clear that there are significant risks that could occur with climate change, and there are lots of ways that we as humans individually and collectively in our societies can intervene to reduce the level of risk, to reduce the level of vulnerability, and so that these bad outcomes don't occur to the same extent as what are projected. Mm-hmm. Let, let me ask also, there is, there is literature, and you summarize 
uh, some of it in the chapter's discussion, and that is species loss. So at least um, leaving aside much of the literature about this is the sixth great extinction, but there is discussion about um, loss of a climatically determined geographic range for species. Can you explain what that means? It's easiest to explain for ecosystems that have unique niches. In the American Southwest, we've got cloud forests, for example, and they're typically on top of steeps. And as temperatures continue to rise, and with that, there's a change in the precipitation patterns, most of those will not continue to exist. That when you look at our ecosystems, mostly they developed in a time where the climate was really stable. Right now, temperature is increasing faster than it has in more than 10,000 years. And ecosystems don't adapt that quickly. Correct, yes. They can't evolve at that rate. And so, yes, there's, there's real concerns about what could happen in some ecosystems with these changes in temperature and precipitation and trying to understand whether it's possible to migrate some of these ecosystems, if we can take some of the key flora and fauna we're concerned about it and move it to another location. But what are the options for trying to facilitate these transitions without having significant ecosystem collapse? Okay, and you actually, there are percents given for insects, plants, vertebrates, uh, relative to 1.5 versus 2C. Let me, I, I do have another question about your chapter, and I had not seen this previously in the literature, and that's these RFCs, reasons for concern, and I guess mm-hmm. these are, RFCs are scored one through five. Can you explain uh, how these are used? The reasons for concern were, they first appeared in the IPCC third assessment report. So they are certainly well-known within the IPCC community. And the, the question for the reason for concern goes back actually to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, where Article 2 of the convention talks about keeping temperatures from rising so much that it adversely affects ecosystems, agriculture, and economies. Okay. The phrasing is dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. And dangerous, of course, is not a scientific term. It is a term that, that we use in regular speech. And so there were questions over the years of how do we think about these reasons for concern? How do we think about dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system? Mm-hmm. And They're not ranked. There are five reasons for concern that were worked out in the third assessment report. And each assessment report conducted by the Working Group 2 contribution, Working Group 2 looks at impacts and adaptation, then takes a look at the reasons for concern to see how they've changed since the previous assessment report. So, for example, one of the reasons for concern is loss of part of the Antarctic ice sheet, for example. So large-scale changes, changes in the frequency and intensity of extreme events, and changes in unique ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So we, like other assessment reports, looked at these reasons for concern, looked at the recent literature, 
and then provided information on how these risks changed since the last report and what the risks look like at warming of one and a half and two degrees C above pre-industrial. Okay, thank you. So I, I see uh, unique and, as you know, unique and threatened systems, extreme weather events, large-scale singular events, uh, mm-hmm. et cetera. Okay, thank you. So let's, let me move off uh, the chapter and ask, uh, what's next? I understand there's an upcoming or the work is furthered. There's a meeting upcoming in Poland? There is a meeting coming up in Poland that is a follow-up by the countries that are members of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is all countries, to further discuss operalization. I'm not sure I can say that word. Operationalizing the Paris Agreement. And this report was timed to feed into those discussions because countries wanted to know what are the risks at one and a half versus two degrees that if we aim at one and a half degrees, obviously the level of ambition for mitigation is much larger. But what does that get you? What are the trade-offs of upping your ambition and what does it buy you in terms of reducing risks to human and natural systems? And so this report will be heavily discussed in the upcoming meeting in Poland. As I mentioned before, we're also within the sixth assessment cycle for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The full assessments are underway for the three working groups. Working Group 1 looks at climate science. Working Group 2 looks at impacts and adaptation. And Working Group 3 looks at mitigation. There's also two special reports ongoing, one on oceans and the cryosphere, and the other on land use, land use change, agriculture, and related issues. So there are five more reports that will be coming out in the cycle looking at specific issues of importance and then, of course, conducting the overall assessment. So needless to say, it's busy. Uh, yeah, speaking it of busy. reports, um, there is the also uh, probably, let's hope, better known to uh, folks here in the U.S., uh, the Climate Science and Special Report, and that is anticipated sometime soon. Is that not correct? The climate change special report was already released. What's coming out next month will be the fourth U.S. national assessment. And that is, so that's anticipated in December? Correct. Okay. Thank you. So I do have, uh, I do have a, a wrap-up question or a final question. As I noted at the top, and this ties back to my brief introduction, the healthcare industry, although obviously there are exceptions uh, for example, in the recent San Francisco meeting, the Kaiser uh, noted that they hope to have their uh, integrated system carbon neutral by 2020, and there are, of course, others. But asking you to speculate, um, how might the healthcare industry uh, engage further or more aggressively or more rapidly in addressing uh, this issue? Is it largely, do you think, uh, mostly an education effort? Or how do you think uh, the industry can become more, let's just say, sensitive or responsive? There's two main areas where the industry needs to focus. One is healthcare is 10% of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Right. And so there are significant opportunities to reduce emissions in healthcare, which would be good for our health, good for their bottom line, good for our planet. 
The other is that there are many healthcare facilities in vulnerable places. They're being affected by floods. They're being affected by storm surge. So they themselves are quite vulnerable to a change in climate. And there needs to be more effort into looking at how to increase the resilience of our healthcare facilities as the climate continues to change. Part of that, of course, is thinking about what may need to be done in terms of addressing the projected additional cases of climate-sensitive health outcomes. So reducing their emissions is really important, providing an example for others, and then making sure that they are prepared when they're hit with heat waves, floods, storm surges, and others. Right. Per your resilience comment, of course, much to do about the extent to which uh, those in harm's way relative to Hurricane Michael uh, were prepared and able to uh, deal with uh, that weather. So uh, with that, um, Professor Ebay, I appreciate uh, your time and overview of this work. Uh, very helpful. I wish you success in this work going forward. If we could or I could check in at some point down the road about um, subsequent work, I'd be very appreciative. But thank you for this. That sounds great. I really appreciate the opportunity. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.